137th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Pixelated Paranormal, episode 290. I, of course, am Sean. And last night, I bowled my best bowling game of my entire life with a 169. And with me, as always, is Preston. How are you, bud? What's up, all you cool ghosts and goblins, you crocodiles and crocodingos, skeletors and skeletons, and whatever the fuck else you want to be? I'm doing better. I'm getting ready to uh, yeah. go on vacation, celebrate the wife's 34th birthday, 35th birthday. You say with so much conviction yeah. and assurance. Well, I'm almost 40. <laughs> and uh, let's see, I was born in 84 and she was born in 89. So, yeah, this has got to be her 35th because I'll be 40 in uh, February. So, we're. Uh, Taking her to North Carolina. We got a little road trip, and I think we're both excited uh, just to uh, get on the fucking road. So, how long are you guys going to be gone for? Until uh, Friday. So, oh, that's not too bad. Yeah. Very nice. Nice little five day trip. Well, that'll be cool, man. I hope you get some cool, you know, ghosty stuff. Maybe a haunted hotel or two here and there. That'd be fantastic. I don't, I would, it's her birthday getaway, so it's whatever she has planned. So, uh, you know, I got Queens of the Stone Age ticket, which you always confuse with the uh, Army of Darkness or whatever that shitty band. What? <laughs> no, shit, I always shitty bands called. I always get them confused with the band that sings. Uh, I believe in a thing called love. Yeah, the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> the darkness, Army of Darkness. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Good stuff. Well. We're not going to waste any time uh, this episode with the news because we've got like a 13-page write-up on this stuff uh, without any pictures even this time. So we really did some research. Got a lot of fun stuff to talk about this episode. It's a big in. So last time we met, we talked about Jimmy Page and his obsession with the occult and Aleister Crowley's workings. And we talked a little bit about the uh, four strange symbols that Page used for Led Zeppelin's fourth album. And then we moved on to the Demon Zozo, a.k.a. the infamous Ouija board entity himself, or itself. Well, in this episode, we're going to delve into three more stories of rock and roll, pop music, and again, the influence and involvement of the occult. We've got Satan, we've got aliens, we've got UFOs, and we've got even more possible magical duels between wannabe magicians. So why not just start things off with the most iconic pop and rock band of our time, the Rolling Stones? Whoa, 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 whoa! No, there, there, there's no such thing as rolling the Rolling Stones into a pop band. They're, they're straight rock and roll, baby. You think so? Uh, there's no, there's no pop about that. I don't know. I still would roll them into pop music, man. It's just, it's popular. Brown music. Sugar, not a pop song. Beast of Burden, not a pop song. I'd say if it's played on like, you know, AM, PM radio, it's going to be pop music, bud. And I've heard both of those on 104.5 The the Fox. 
Well, I guess this is where the show falls apart, guys. 290 episodes, and this is where we draw the line. Because <laughs> yeah. you're going to be like, another pop music. Let's talk about David Bowie. Again, David Bowie is a musical genius, not yes. a pop artist. But you cannot prevent your music from rolling into popular culture, i.e. pop music. So you won't set eh. out to be a pop icon, but you become popular. I mean, he's an icon in everything. Fashion, um, sexuality, art, music, You can say everything. pop. I, 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 will, I will split the diff and okay. say you okay. can call them a popular culture icon, but they are not a fucking pop band because <laughs> pop bands is a particular genre of music with its own set sound. Okay. That ain't it, baby. But you can say <laughs> pop icon or popular culture icon, okay. and I will let that slide. Okay. So, because I, I, I would have David Bowie's children if he asked me to. So, I mean, he is an icon. <laughs> Fire Pixie says adult contemporary. That just makes it sound like we're old. <laughs> like yeah. we're listening to, you know, um, Jason Mraz or something like that. But I don't know. If you say a guy's a pop icon, I think that just kind of goes hand in hand with saying he was part of pop music. But. We shall digress and ag- agree to disagree. Well. So before that, <laughs> what's your favorite Rolling Stones song? <laughs> uh, favorite Rolling Stones song. Um, man, that's that's a tough one because that was uh, that was a concert that I was fortunate enough to go to with Dad. Mm-hmm. Um, Several years ago, the Rolling Stones decided to do kind of like a greatest hits tour, but they were going to like smaller venues, so it wasn't going to be like arenas. Mm-hmm. And uh, they came to Wichita, and they played at the, the Wichita State University uh, football arena that we mm. don't use for football. Um, it's like not really. It was it was a weird venue for a concert, right? Mm-hmm. But Dad was super excited to be able to. You know, take me and Jason to that. Like, you know, the boys are going to a rock concert. Uh, they played Sympathy for the Devil, and this giant fucking inflatable Satan popped out of the stage, and they had flames and shit going on. Uh, you know, Mick Jagger asked us to sing along with You Can't Always Get What You Want. <laughs> uh, at the end, that that was the, uh, you know, they came back out, and it was kind of the last two songs that they that they played. So I got you know I got to sing along with Mick Jagger and feel like a badass for a night. Um, give me shelter, I would say uh, is probably going to be it. Uh, that uh, did you ever see The Departed with uh, uh, Jack Nicholson? Yeah, DiCaprio, and Leonardo right? DiCaprio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, that opening song that's the Rolling Stones song is "Give Me Shelter" and. That would probably, I mean, the guitar solo is so fucking slick on that. And then uh, Paint It Black, um, even when Kevin Bacon was making fun of that song with uh, uh, the, what's that two-bit talk show host that's not David Letterman that everybody likes, uh, not uh, Jimmy Kimmel, but the other one. Um, Don't you dare say Conan O'Brien. Not Conan O'Brien. I actually like Conan O'Brien. It's it's the other late night guy that's a hack that used to be on Saturday Night Live. Leno, Jay Leno. No, a newer one. Uh, Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, Fallon. Fuck oh, that God. guy. Yeah. Anyway, so he had Kevin Bacon on, and they did a spoof of Paint It Black, and uh, it's still a solid song, even if you're trying to make fun of the Rolling Stones. 
their music still kicks ass. And uh, so I, I would say give me shelter and paint it black. That was a very long roundabout way to, to get to that. But, yeah, the, that would be it. Those would be the two. Well, I'll be damned. Um, of course, you mentioned WSU, and I wasn't expecting that. Let's drop in here a little uh, memoriam for the Wichita State University football team. Um, the football stadium made kind of a really weird um, venue for a while because our college here in Wichita, Kansas, um, we don't have a football team at Wichita State because of a really bad plane crash that happened back in October the 2nd, 1970. 71? 70. 70. Um, unfortunately, the gold plane, a Martin 404 carrying 36 passengers and a crew of four, um, it wrecked into, uh, where was it, uh, Silver Plume, Colorado, while en route to Logan, Utah, for a game with Utah State University. And sadly, it um, it killed, what, 29 people on that team. Um, most of, if not the majority of uh, the football team, you know, passed away. And so since then... There's not been a football team. They haven't replaced it. Um, they completely ended that, and we just haven't had a team since the 70s. So um, super, super sad deal. Um, there's a couple memorials there at the campus. Uh, of course, that's where Preston and I both went to college. But, yeah, so interestingly enough, you got to see the stones there, which is pretty, pretty cool, man. I like that. Yeah. Well, uh, going back around to the question, my favorite would be Paint It Black or also Miss You. I really like the song Miss You. But yeah, we're here to talk about one specific song. So the Rolling Stones, of course, had countless hits over the decades, including Under My Thumb, Paint It Black, Miss You, Satisfaction, and several others. But one specific song seems... Jumping Jack Flash is a gas, gas, gas. <laughs> right? Um, one specific song seems to have a tinge of both the devil and black magic that just possibly may have a curse attached to it as well. Of course, we're talking about uh, a little song right on the tip of the nose here, Sympathy for the Devil, released back on September 4th, 1970. So, you know, coincidentally, but not at all uh, intertwined with, of course, that uh, plane crash we're talking about. Anyway, we got to back it up a little ways from 1970s all the way back to 1967. Back in 1967, a manuscript for a book written by Mikhail Bulgakov, called The Master and Margarita, was smuggled out of Moscow and then translated into the English language. In the novel, during one especially hot spring, the devil arrives in Moscow, accompanied by a beautiful naked witch and an immense talking black cat with a fondness for playing chess and drinking vodka, and the trio quickly wreak havoc all across the city, a city which refuses to believe in neither God or the devil. But they also bring peace to two unhappy Muscovites. One is known as the Master, a writer pillared for daring to write a novel about Christ and Pontius Pilate, and the other, a character called Margarita, who loves the Master so deeply she's willing to literally go to hell for him to show her devoutness. Well, anyway, when this fantastical musing on Satan visited the Soviet Union, um, sorry, Anyway, when this fantastic musing about Satan and how he visits the Soviet Union was released in the Soviet Union, it was heavily censored there. But a copy was translated into English and then released over in the States and also parts of Europe. And Mick Jagger's girlfriend, Marianne Faithful, gave him a copy so that Mick Jagger could then read the book. This thing had a huge impact on Mick Jagger, 
being the front man of the Rolling Stones, of course, it helped influence the release of their 1967 album, Their Satanic Majesty's Request. Now, that album bore no specific lyrical reference to the occult nor the book in question, but at any rate, Mick Jagger still became increasingly fascinated by Satanism. Then the next year, uh, in the spring of 1968, the Stones recorded their Beggar's Banquet album, where Jagger wrote this kind of like Bob Dylan-style song called Sympathy for the Devil, which tells the story from the viewpoint of the devil. But his rendition of Lucifer wasn't the typical fire and brimstone kind of spitting Old Testament Beelzebub. But instead, this character, the lead character of the song, was more like the devil from The Master and Margarita, which was a suave and smooth-talking gentleman. Now, originally the song was called The Devil Is My Name, but the song opens anyway, with Jagger's Satan character saying, please allow me to introduce myself. No, 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 no. If you're going to do it, you had a fucking karaoke. No, I will not karaoke because I haven't drank. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. (laughs) Woo-hoo. <laughs> Come on, dude, get into it. This there is fucking go. rock and roll in the occult. Oh, uh, boy. Let me just talk about it. I, I, you know, I can drink five beers and sing karaoke in front of everybody, but uh, when we're doing a podcast about it, I'm going to be shy. Mer. I was more thinking, like, clarity of the lyrics more than anything. Yeah. Was well, Preston <laughs> just, you know, sang like a silver-tongued karaoke singer here? Please allow me to yeah, introduce that's right, myself. Bitch ass, bitch ass Satan. I'll take your ass down to Georgia. I'll win that gold fiddle contest, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> uh, anyway, the devil introduces himself, saying, "Please allow me to introduce myself. I am a man of wealth and taste." And Jagger's oddly polite devil then goes on to take credit for several historical catastrophes, including the crucifixion of Christ, saying, "I made damn sure Pilate washed his hands and sealed his fate." Then he goes on to say that he caused the Russian Revolution, killing the Romanovs. He's also responsible for the Nazi atrocities and the Hundred Years' War. But here's a really interesting little factoid. The original lyric, the devil asks, who killed Kennedy? But then, shortly after, on June 5th, 1968, as the Stones recorded the song, JFK's brother Robert was also shot in L.A., so, ever the opportunist, Jagger then changed the line to who killed the Kennedy. So, there's a fun little fact for you that you may not have known. Anyway, Sympathy for the Devil follows so closely behind their Satanic Majesty's request, a lot of folks are beginning to believe that the group had aligned themselves with the occult, which McJagger responded by saying, I just thought uh, it was really an odd thing because it wasn't only one song, after all. It wasn't like we did a whole album with lots of occult signs on the back. People seemed to embrace the imagery so readily. But the association itself, however, wasn't so far-fetched, because Jagger would quickly adopt a demonic persona for his starring role in a crime film called Performance, which was filmed so soon after Sympathy for the Devil was completed, he later collaborated with American occultist and filmmaker Kenneth Anger, who we briefly uh, mentioned last episode as well, who also lived in Crowley's Bolskin house. Meanwhile, though, coincidentally, both Keith Richards and his partner Anita were said to be dabbling in witchcraft themselves and started embracing the darker imagery. Richards would comment that, It's something everybody ought to explore. 
there's possibilities there. All these things are bunged together under the name of superstition and old wives' tales. I'm not an expert in it, but I'd never pretend to be. I just try to bring it a little to the open. But back to the song here, a lot of people started speculating that the song itself was cursed because when avant-garde director Jean-Luc Godard filmed the movie One Plus One, mysteriously, one of his lights started smoking on the set and blew up, starting a studio fire that damaged the majority of the Rolling Stones' gear, but miraculously somehow left the tapes unharmed. Some also instigated the song for the crowd's unrest at the 1969's Altamont Festival that also led to the murder of Meredith Hunter by the Hell's Angel security guards during the Stones' set. During their performance, the band had to stop and restart the song due to strong disturbances out in the crowd. Now, you know, guitar phenom Carlos Santana would also go on to say that he was also performing at the Altamont and claimed the track had unleashed demonic forces across the crowd, and he himself doesn't have any sympathy for the devil. The devil is not Santa Claus. He is for real. Then to further go on with the supposed curse, of course, we all know the famous story that Guns N' Roses was hired to record their cover of Sympathy for the Devil for the interview with the vampire film, filmed back in 1994. But because... Slash was so upset that Axel invited a new rhythm guitarist named Paul Huge to play on the song, thus changing the original tone of the song. He was so pissed off that he quit the band. But maybe there is more of a blessing than a curse there, but a lot of people blame that song with the first breakup of Guns N' Roses. Any hoozle, the diligent Jagger soon disavowed any interest in Satanism and moved on. Yet the ever-unconventional Richards remained less inclined to deny the spirit of the Stones' dark labyrinthian masterpiece, saying, Sympathy is an uplifting song. It's just a matter of looking at the devil in the face. He's there all the time, and I've had a very close contact with Lucifer. I've met him several times. So it begs the question, is the song itself cursed, or did they just do us a favor by breaking up Guns N' Roses? <laughs> Uh, well, Preston, I'm going to tag you in, buddy, because you've got quite the whopper of a tale here, taking us from, uh, you know, the terrestrial Earth and the devil to uh, maybe somewhere in outer space, huh? That's right, man. We're going to talk about Sun Ra, so strap in, people. The best jazz musician to ever grace the universe. When the aliens abducted Sun Ra, they made it clear that he was chosen for his perfect discipline. Apparently not every human has what it takes for intergalactic travel. So, Sean, you and I are out. Mm. But Sun Ra, this cat, with his exceptional mind and body control, was deemed fit for the journey. According to Ra, this extraordinary encounter took place in the 1930s. Was that before Betty and Barney Hill? Do we have a... Do we have information? Do we have a fact checker? I mean, a fact checker, real quick. I mean, we could we could probably jump and chat and ask Lazarus, and he'll be able to just. Yeah. When was uh when when did the uh, Betty and Barty Hill abduction happen? <laughs> and I'm also drinking uh, beer uh, out of my ET glass. So. Oh, I think I have that same glass, buddy. That's awesome. Hell yeah! Great minds think alike. Okay. Supposedly they were abducted from the state of New Hampshire, um, September nineteenth, nineteen sixty one. Okay, so this happened well before Betty and Barney Hill. 
might be the first known abduction case. Who knows? Anyways, all this took place while he was studying to become a teacher in Huntsville, Alabama. These aliens sporting antennas above their eyes and ears instantly recognized a kindred spirit in Ra. They whisked him away to Saturn and revealed knowledge that shattered the boundaries of human imagination. They instructed him to wait for the bleakest moment on Earth, which, so like 1930, I don't know, like any period during or after World War II, I mean, we dropped the bombs on Japan, Hitler wiped out half the world. I mean, that's pretty fucking bleak, but whatever. Uh, before sharing the equations for transcending or mundane reality, this cosmic directive guided Ra through his life as a musician and as a philosopher. By the 50s, the sign of hopelessness were all around. Racism, the looming threat of nuclear war. It's a motherfucker. And social movement seeking political freedom, but not cosmic enlightenment. In response, Ra released over a hundred albums of visionary jazz over the next four decades until his passing in 1993. And I'm going to interject real quick. The really cool thing about seeing Sun Ra in concert is he actually had a record booth set up so they could record the show and press it onto vinyl. And when it comes to collecting records, he is probably one of the most sought after artists because some of his stuff is so rare because if he did a sh show in Detroit, there might only be a two, three, four a handful of pressings from that show making it uh, extra collectible. Huh. Yeah. Now is he No, he died pretty early, 1993. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Some of his creations were wild and chaotic space music, while others offered whimsical and lush interpretations of Gershwin or the, you know, Disney classics or Conan the Barbarian. I Actually, record store day bought a Sun Ra, and it sounds like I'm listening to Conan the Barbarian soundtrack. <laughs> but regardless of the style, Ra intended his music to be danceable, even if very few people knew the steps. He was originally known as Herman Poole Blount and entered this world in Birmingham, Alabama in 1914. His family, being supportive and religious, named him after Black Herman a magician who claimed to hail from the dark jungles of Africa and spiced up his death-defying escape acts with some hoodoo mysticism. Little Ra displayed a astonishing talent for tickling the ivories and composing music at a tender age. But things took a wild turn after his alleged close encounter with extraterrestrials and he bid farewell to college, because fuck that shit, I'm, a, I'm an alien genius now, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and embarked on a journey that led him to the windy city of Chicago. In this bus bustling mes me uh, metropolis, <laughs> Ra found himself tickling the ivories in strip clubs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And jamming alongside local blues crooners. He even managed to snag a spot in a big band. And meanwhile, during Ra's childhood, archaeologists stumbled upon the intact tomb of Feral Tutankhamun. Wait, hold on. I don't, I don't know if that's an actual... Uh, I thought that was earlier, like... 1890 something you should fact check that too when, when did we discover tutankhamun oh tomb? no you and jerry the ai wrote this buddy this thing is just ironclad yeah. you know yeah uh 1920 i thought let me see here when did we all right that matches up because he was born in 1914 so 
Well, know, I'm just guessing facts, here, man. Uh, Hold on. 1922. All right, All right so that f- fact check, boom, matches up. Never mind. Anyways, so they discovered the, the tomb of Pharaoh Tutankhamun, sparking a wave of pride among African Americans who revered or reveled in the Egyptian roots of human civilization. Chicago, with its vibrant cultural tapestry, exposed Ra to an to alternative interpretations of scripture by black Muslims, black Israelites, as well as hidden histories of, of black struggle and mind-bending science fiction. These influences seeped into his music like gravy on mashed potatoes. In <laughs> 1952, <laughs> Ra decided to shake things up and change his name to Le Sonye Ra, or simply Sun Ra, paying homage to the Egyptian sun god. And on the south side of Chicago, he became a prolific distributor of mimographic broadsheets with titles like The Bible Was Not Written, Just Use Your Imagination, for black people. Uh-huh. Ra also assembled a band later known as the Arc Orchestrata, featuring the likes of saxophonist Marshall Allen, John Gilmore, and, and Pat Patrick. And instead of sticking to tight swings of flashy solos they embrace a ragged and exploratory style complete with squiggles of electronic keyboard and wonky horn sounds in the early 60s raw and his bandmates packed their bags and headed to the big apple where they quickly quickly gained a reputation for their outlandish and vibrant costumes these ensembles were mesmer or a mesmerizing blend of ancient and futuristic making them look like time traveling fashionistas so you don't need a DeLorean when you can look uh, when you can rock a cosmic robe, right? <laughs> Fuck that time machine. You just got to have the right digs. In his album notes and interviews, Ra took it upon himself to sketch out an astro-black mythology, a grand plan to connect the ancient history of Egypt with the mind-boggling visions of the future where humans would embark on a cosmic exodus beyond the stars. Now, the specifics of Ra's vision may have been a tad fuzzy, but he genuinely believed that the tumultuous events of history, particularly the horrors of American slavery, had rendered life on Earth simply unbearable. And according to him, humanity needed to break free from the mess. So fuck it and just jet off to a technological paradise light years away. And the 19th, dude, that, that, that actually hits home with our current situation you know what fucking earth sucks let's just (laughs) you know what peace out girl scout we're done anyways in the 1974 film space is the place the fabulous singer june tyson poses the question it's after the end of the world don't you know that yet and boy did Ra resonate with that sentiment he referred to his teachings as myths these fantastical tales about the future that were meant to serve as our guiding light Ra was about embracing the impossible because, let's face it, everything possible had already been done, and yet the world remained disappointingly unchanged. So he decided to spice things up by giving instruments some seriously out-of-this-world names like the Space Dimensional Mellophone, the Cosmic Tone Organ, and the Sun Harp. Moreover, ordinary instruments, there, there's a new cosmic sound in town. Now, here's where things get really interesting. One of Ra's band members recalled that if you happened to hit a wrong note during a performance, everyone else had to roll with it and incorporate that mistake into the song. 
It was like a musical game of follow the leader, but with a twist. For Ra, the orchestrata wasn't just a group of regular musicians. They were tone scientists, baby, on a mission to explore the sonic universe. And in fact, one of their albums from 1967 was aptly titled Cosmic Tones for Mental Therapy. Because you don't need a therapist when you can just groove to some mind-bending cosmic melodies, right? <laughs> you don't need a therapist when yeah. you have a theremin. That's right. <laughs> Back in 1968, Sun Ra and his bandmates decided to take the plunge and move into a house in Philadelphia. Now, their communal living situation is, is a major highlight in the 1980 film Sun Ra, A Joyful Noise by Robert Moogie. Despite Ra's, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but uh, we're going we're gonna to roll with it. I like it. I Despite approve. Despite Ra's, you approve. Despite Ra's reputation for, you know, being eccentric, he wasn't exactly a free-spirited hippie in his personal life. He had a strict aesthetic vision going on. We're talking about sustaining from alcohol, drugs, sex, and even sleep. Uh, so he really wasn't like Crowley. He was like the polar opposite of, of Crowley, whereas Crowley likes sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> uh, Sun Ra was like, fuck that shit. Got to keep this body pure, motherfucker. Whew. <laughs> and if you thought that that was intense, just wait until you hear about his band practice schedule. That's right. He <laughs> demanded that his band be available for practice at any hour of the day. He believed that creativity had no curfew. But don't let his serious demeanor fool you. Rod ha Ra had a mischievous side, too. He once referred to himself as Earth's gesture, and that playful spirit shines through in the film, and at one point he even throws a riddle our way, teasing us about his true identity. Some call me Mr. Ra, others call me Mr. Ray, but you can call me Mr. Mystery. Oh, Sun Ra, <laughs> you sly trickster, you little devil, you. During a practice session captured in the film, the fabulous singer J June Tyson belts out a wild and, uh, song called Astro Black, while the band members uh, looking like they stepped out of three-dimensional outer space. You can't help but smile at the glorious chaos. I mean, who needs harmony when you have a little musical mayhem, right? Yeah, why not? If you fast, yeah, you fast forward to 1969, uh, Esquire magazine decided to ask a bunch of celebrities, including Muhammad Ali, On Rand, and Leonard Nimoy, for suggestions on what Neil Armstrong should say as he set foot on the moon. Most people provided serious warnings or crack jokes, but not our dear Sun Ra. Nope, he contributed a poem instead. The man was a poet, after all, and his poem went like this. Reality has touched against myth. Humanity can move to achieve the impossible because when you achieve... One impossible, others come together to be with their brother. The first impossible, borrowed from the rim of the myth. Happy space age to you. Now, see, I'm sad because you Damn. didn't sing that like the Rolling Stones. Oh. Well, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know how he would have sang it. Because, mm -hmm. you know, the one song I sent you today, he didn't really sing. He just said motherfucker. After <laughs> the line. So. Right. And that was really poetic, so I felt like I, I couldn't do that. That's all right. Yeah. Now, despite his uh, undeniable talent and influence, Ra wasn't always taken seriously. In the late 60s, he even graced the cover of Rolling Stones, but still people often dismiss him as a lunatic, eccentric, crazy. Get this fucking guy out of here. <laughs> and let's be honest, his flamboyant theatrical dress 
uh, didn't help in uh, shifting the focus to an incredible skills as a composer. Nobody gave a crap. In a lecture he delivered in New York, Ra made it clear that he had no interest in making music about Earth things. Oh, no. He preferred to uh, riff on Iran, the threat of nuclear warfare, and the fact that young people seemed more interested in earthly matters than cosmic salvation. He couldn't help but poke fun at the state of the world and ask us with a hint of sarcasm, how do you like it? Well, Sun Ra, we can't deny that you had a point there. And <laughs> if we fast forward to current events, I don't fucking like it. Thanks for asking. Now, Sean, you're probably saying, wait a minute, motherfucker. I thought you texted me today that this guy was a cult leader and there was something about rainbow people and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And you just gave us all the fucking history lesson. That's all right. I, I have to say I appreciate Sun Ra because, like you mentioned earlier, he got a lot of flack for dressing so flamboyantly and just so goofy for the times. But he also, in my opinion, kind of paved the way for, you know, Parliament Funkadelic and CeeLo Green and some of these other guys because – you can say that, you know, Elton John also paved the way for that flamboyancy, but it's one thing for a white dude to dress that way. It's a whole different ballgame for a black man to dress like that and those colors yeah. just so, you know, technicolored and, and flamboyant and just fancy and flashy. Uh, I don't know if you'd have people like Parliament or you'd have people like, you know, CeeLo Green. I think he's come out and said that's directly an ode to uh, Sun Ra and Elton John both whenever he performs. So Yeah. Anyways... The man with the wackiest, yeah, religious and occult beliefs in town, but wait, there's more. It seems that he also had a knack for running the band like a cult leader. Now, before everybody's like, wait a minute, is he like sacrificing goats or engaging in some unsavory activities? Mm -hmm. Let me clarify that Sun Ra wasn't exactly your typical cult leader. No, no, he didn't go around killing or abusing anyone as far as we know. But let's dive into some intriguing parallels, shall we? According to Sedwid's book, Space is the Place, The Lives and Times of Sun Ra, our cosmic maestro timelessly, tirelessly promoted the idea of absolute authority and the importance of leaders. He believed in the power of, of following someone with unwavering devotion. Like, you know, Crowley asked his followers. He believed uh, <laughs> that uh, the Jazz Composers Guild, they... They needed a leader to succeed, and I guess he couldn't resist being the one in charge. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't stop there. Sun Ra had some interesting ways of controlling his band members based on his beliefs. Picture this, musicians changing their shirts right in front of the audience because the colors were, uh, that they were wearing were disturbing him. Yes, you heard that right. The man had a thing against certain colors, claiming they were the devil's colors. Kind of like Bobby Boucher, uh, you know, devil's uh, <laughs> football or whatever. Foosball, Foosball is the devil. devil, mama. Yeah. So if you wanted to have a conversation with him, so if you were trying to do an interview, you had to switch to a different color if he didn't like what you had on because <clears throat> you, you couldn't get the cosmic flow. And let's not forget his room assignments shenanigans. On tour, he insisted on seeing the color of each room before assigning the players to them. So if, uh, you know, Pat, the saxophone player, uh, was going to stay in a room that had yellow wallpaper and he didn't like it, then he'd make the hotel management <laughs> flip all that around to make sure that the vibes were matching up. Uh -huh. Now, cutting off family ties is a classic move for cult leaders, and Sun Ra didn't shy away from that either. 
He wanted his band members to avoid girlfriends, families, and even funerals. Damn. Where orchestra members brought their girlfriends around, he would insult them, fearing that they, they would leave the band. He wanted everyone to follow his lead and break those sentimental attachments. He even tried to talk John Gilmore out of attending uh, his own mother's funeral. Ooh. Like, hey, I realize Mama died, but the show must go on, so... You know, cut that shit out. You got to stay here. Some members actually believed that Sun Ra possessed cult leader-like powers. They thought he had an extraordinary gift, like predicting the future and seeing into other dimensions where the shadow people dwelled. That's right. Oh, shit. Sun Ra knew all about the shadow people. Talk about a man connected to forces on other planets and universes. He might have even known the secret to conquer death. Move over, David Blaine. Sun Ra's got the real <laughs> magic tricks, baby. Now, you're probably thinking, rainbow people. What about them? You keep talking about the rainbow people. Well, I'm going to share this little blip from an article by Gary Gomez called The Occult and Music. Sun Ra's interest in Egypt and spirituality was not just for show. When I met him and spoke with him in 1973... It was an interview in only the loosest sense of the word. Uh, one of the things he told me to do was look up a book that I would be interested in at the University of California at Berkeley. The book, Urantia, has to be one of the strangest books ever written. It was written through a technique that would later be called channeling, but was composed in the early 12th century by a spirit possessing a well-placed man and an apparently well-placed group of people. If such a thing were to happen today, there would be a rush to record it or make a television series about it. But being well-placed at the time meant that you would not want anyone else to know of this. So a group met and recorded the book in secret. The book proposes the history of the universe told from the creation, and Ra was fascinated by it. In one of the chapters of the book, it spoke of green, blue, orange, and red, whatever, all the colors of the rainbow of people, so much so that Ra felt that this was why people had a distinct color preference throughout their lives. Somebody who liked green, let's say, clothing, probably was a green person in a previous lifetime. He also spoke freely about angels and UFO abductions that he had experienced. This was 1973, long before this kind of thing became popular. Does that mean I'm a blue person because I like blue? I, I must be a blue person too, baby. That's my <laughs> favorite color. I always thought maybe it's because I'm colorblind and I just like everything else is always brown because I don't see red, green, and orange, and that's why I like blue. But, you know, maybe the old uh, Roz got it right. I was a blue person, you know? I could have been uh, in blue man group before my time. <laughs> or maybe we were just gray people because we were both colorblind. <laughs> oh damn it there it is yeah there it mystery is. solved man mystery solved well that's rad i gotta start listening to more sun ron now because i know you and your brother have both mentioned him in the past but i haven't really given him you know his day in court so to speak so i gotta give that a shot one of these days well we're gonna wrap things up here with a journey back into david bowie because why wouldn't you talk about david bowie when you're talking about the occult the devil and rock and roll now, I won't say he was a pop culture icon. I won't say he had pop music. I'll just say that, you know, he was one of the most influential rock and roll stars of our time. How about that, Preston? 
that's you, dude. You nailed it right there. <laughs> he is one of the greatest artists ever, ever to touch Earth. Yeah, I got a David Bowie tattoo for God's sakes. Now it's it's merged with Spider Man because two of my favorite things in the world are Bowie and Spider Man. But name name one other person. Name one other person on this Earth that decided to take photo shots of his face like he was actually you know as an adult going through live birth and then projecting that onto an egg and all the other weird. He got like uh, before AI. He had some program that he programmed on a computer, and he would type uh-huh. in, like, news articles and stuff, and it would, like, sit there and spit out the most popular words or whatever, and he would make lyrics for a whole entire... He he was he was a fucking genius, you know? You wouldn't have Michael Jackson if you didn't have David Bowie. Hmm. Uh, you wouldn't have Nine Inch Nails if you didn't have David Bowie. Not a bad thing. Uh, I, I, yeah, so, <laughs> I, I mean, almost everybody owes... Their 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 spark in the music world and art world to this fucking man. Yeah, for so, sure, dude. Highly influential. Yeah. Well, David Bowie had a collection that mutated constantly of occult interests over the course of his entire life, but his main passions were that of the Kabbalah, otherwise known as the Jewish mysticism belief, and also the works of English occultist, you guessed it, folks, Aleister Crowley. In Sean Egan's book, Bowie on Bowie, interviews and encounters with David Bowie, Bowie himself would go on to say, my overriding interest was in the Kabbalah and Crowleyism, the whole dark and rather fearsome never world of the wrong side of the brain. And in addition to his using Crowley as sort of this guide, Bowie even dressed up a lot like the occult magician in a series of photo shoots off and on, oftentimes donning spooky Egyptian robes and other looks similar to some of those of Crowley's. So in addition to Crowley, much of Bowie's early 1970s mysticism stems from a collection of occult texts based on the teachings of Madame Blavatsky. Blavatsky was a 19th century occultist who founded the Theosophical Society, a group that believed in an energy called the Vril that could be included in fantasies of a master race that lived inside the earth, a belief that would also attract many members of the Nazi party. Somebody uh, somebody con- uh, commented on the uh, Facebook live feed and said the sexual uh, tension between you two is incredibly noticeable. Just give <laughs> in to your desire, spoon feed each other mayonnaise, and then kiss, on the other, uh, kiss each other on the forehead. Thanks, that- Mike. We've already done that. Okay. So, what now? <laughs> Terrific. I love it, and I will go get some Hellman's. <laughs> <laughs> I like Miracle. What do you? How do you feel about Miracle Whip? I mean, it's tangy. Oh, you know what? I I like Miracle Whip more than I do Hellman's. Miracle Whip, it is a little sweeter, right? It's not so quite quite so tangy and salty. Yeah. 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 That's the way I go. Oh, it'll be salty by the time we get done, baby. <laughs> anyway, Bowie would go on to reference <laughs> the Vril on Oh You Pretty Things, where he sings about these hollow earth beings called the Vrilia, whom he refers to as Homo Superior. And if you pay enough attention in the 1971 album Hunky Dory, this bad boy's chock full of occult lore, especially in the song Quicksand, which openly references Aleister Crowley and the group The Golden Dawn. The lyrics to Quicksand describe Bowie's growing frustration with Crowleyism and his search for answers in chaos magics. The lyrics state, and I'm not going to see them, I'm closer to the Golden Dawn, immersed in Crowley's uniform of imagery. I ain't got no power anymore. 
Don't believe in yourself. Don't deceive with belief. Knowledge comes with death's relief. The song really shows that even in the early 70s, Bowie was resigned to the fact that death would be the only thing to bring real knowledge. Well, that and of course a little bit of cocaine, right? Both of those things go a long ways. Aleister Crowley once said, Give cocaine to a man already wise, and if he be really master of himself, it will do him no harm. Alas, the power of the drug diminishes with a fearful pace. The doses wax, the pleasures wane, side issues invisible at first arise. They are like devils with flaming pitchforks in their hands. This prediction fit Bowie's love affair with the drug that would lead him into a downward spiral of psychosis. By the time Bowie recorded Station to Station back in 1975, his bandmates said he was using so much cocaina that he would later claim to not remember one single moment of the album's production. But nonetheless, the lyrics to the album's opener, Station to Station, invoke a heavy Kabbalah influence. On the track, Bowie sings... Here we are, one magical movement, from Kether to Malkuth. There are you. You drive like a demon from station to station. Now, the Kabbalah system is known for its sephiroth, or station, each of them separating the realm of spiritual transcendence, Kether, from the physical realm, Malkuth. But speaking of cocaine, we got to mention, of course, that time Bowie had to get his pool exercised, in his house, right? You know, the old story of the famous David Bowie pool exorcism. Now, we talked about it years ago, but it's such a fun story, we got to talk about it yet again. Mm -hmm. So while he lived in Los Angeles in the mid-70s, Bowie notoriously went through this phase where he survived on a strict diet of consuming only cocaine, milk, and red bell peppers. And while it's no surprise that while starving your body of any real vital nutrients... While surviving on milk and red peppers alone and shoving copious amounts of cocaine up your nose, it would certainly do your head in. But David also claimed that he was being continuously haunted by possibly the devil himself. So here's that story told by his now ex-wife Angela Bowie, recorded in Backstage Passes, Life on the Wild Side with Bowie. There was a beautiful Art Deco house on six acres, an exquisite sight and terrific value at just $300,000, which is a shit ton of money back then, of course. But he took one look at the detail that I hadn't noticed, and David Bowie noticed a painting on the floor of a hexagram in a circular room that was done by the previous owner, Gypsy Rose Lee. A great deal of coddling and reassurance got us through that crisis, and I went and found the Dohe Drive house. Built in the late 50s or early 60s, it was a white cube surrounding an indoor swimming pool. David liked the place, but I thought it was too small to meet our needs for very long, and I wasn't crazy about the pool. In my experience, indoor pools are always a problem. But this one was no exception, albeit not in any of the usual ways. Its drawback was one that I hadn't encountered before and haven't seen or heard of since. Satan lived in it. With his own eyes, David said he'd seen him rising up out of the water one night. Feeling demonic forces move in, David felt strongly that he needed an exorcism and asked that his newfound friend, the white witch Wally Elmlark, be called upon to lend her assistance to remove the evil from these surroundings. 
A Greek Orthodox church in L.A. would have done it for us. There was a priest available for such a service, the people had told her. But David wouldn't have it. No strangers allowed, he said. So there we stood with just Wally's instructions and a few hundred dollars worth of books, talismans, and assorted items from Hollywood's comprehensive selection of fine occult emporia. There David Bowie was then, primed and ready. The proper books and doodads were arranged on a big old-fashioned lectern. The incantation began, and although I had no idea what was being said or what language it was being said in, I couldn't stop a weird cold feeling rising up inside me as David would drone on and on. There's no easy or elegant way to say this, so I'm just going to say it straight. At a certain point in the ritual, the pool began to bubble. It bubbled vigorously, perhaps even thrashing is a better term, in a manner inconsistent with any explanation involving any air filter or anything like it. The rock and roll couple watched in amazement. Angie says she tried to be flippant. Oh, well, dear, aren't you so clever? It seems to be working. Something's making it move, don't you think? But I couldn't keep it up. It was very, very strange. Even after my recent experiences, I was having trouble accepting what I was seeing with my own eyes. Angie goes on to insist that she would peek through the glass doors leading by to the pool every so often afterwards and was dumbfounded by what she saw. On one occasion, on the bottom of the pool was a large shadow, or maybe it was just a stain, which had not been there before the ritual had began. It was in the shape of a beast of the underworld. It reminded me of those twisted, tormented gargoyles screaming silently from the spires of medieval cathedrals. It was ugly, shocking, malevolent, and it frightened me. I backed away from it feeling very strange and went through the doorway and told David what I'd seen, trying to be nonchalant, but I wasn't doing very well. He turned white, but eventually became revived, enough to spend the rest of the night doing coke. <laughs> the thin white duke doing thin, right, thin white rails. We go together like cocaine and waffles. He wouldn't go near the pool, though. I still don't know what to think about that night. It runs directly counter to my pragmat uh, my pragmatism, <laughs> my, my pragmatism, and my everyday faith in the integrity of a normal world, and it confuses me greatly. What troubles me the most, though, is that if you were to call that stain a mark of Satan, I don't see how I could argue with you. David, of course, insisted that we move from the house as quickly as possible, and we did just that. But I've heard from reliable sources, Michael Lipman for one, the property's real estate agent, that subsequent tenants haven't been able to remove the shadow. Even though the pool has been painted over a number of times, the shadow always comes back. But anyway, after performing the ritual, David decided it's time to finally pull himself together, give up the milk and the peppers and the cocaine, and just live a straight and narrow life. So now that we're kind of wrapping things up on this episode, why don't I bring things back around Presto and finish right where we began with Jimmy Page? Because it turns out that David Bowie and Jimmy Page were actually pretty good friends for quite a while, oftentimes spending several evenings together, drinking wine, snorting cocaine, and talking about all things Aleister Crowley and magic with a K. It turns out that Page was just as big of a fan, if not more, of the occult and black magic than Bowie was. And while you think that Bowie would love this kind of thing, 
It turns out that he was actually terrified of Paige after a while, and he believed that the guitarist was actually casting spells on him. Bowie's paranoia about Paige stems from an incident where Paige drew a cabalistic symbol on Bowie's studio floor, sending the cocaine-addled singer into a full-blown tailspin. And that's how David Bowie got the David Bowie eyes. <laughs> that one is blown out all the time. Uh, yeah. On another day, Jimmy accidentally spilled wine on a pillow while David Bowie was out of the room. Bowie came back into the room, saw the mess, and thought that this girl spilled it and started yelling at her. But then Bowie caught a glimpse of Jimmy, just grinning off in the distance out of the corner of his eye. He realized at that moment Paige had spilled the wine and didn't bother telling Bowie, thus causing Bowie to yell at the girl. So, Bowie, realizing what was going on, thinking of this as a really shitty prank, blew up at Jimmy for not saying anything and just letting him go full tilt ham on this poor girl. He felt duped, like Paige had orchestrated the entire thing. And so, he told Paige simply to leave. But then he started spinning slightly out of control again even more and began trying to cast his own protective spells against an onslaught of imaginary magical attacks that he believed Paige had then waged against him. Bowie later told his then-wife Angie that he was retaliating against Paige by casting the dark side of Buddhism, more protective spells, and even his own wage of, you know, spells against Paige to kind of, you know, um, sabotage his own life, so to speak. But as their relationship ebbed and flowed on, it wasn't still uncommon for the two of them to get together and hang out once in a while, even when Bowie was sure that Paige was trying to wage a dark art war against him. One evening in particular, Paige was relating to Bowie a terrifying paranormal encounter he had one night at Crowley's mansion. Bowie urged Paige to tell him more and more, and as the two of them swept up lines of coke, Bowie prodded more deeply about what exactly Paige knew of the occult. Each time he did, however, Paige would strangely clam up and just stare blankly. It got awkward, but Bowie tried his best to stay polite. As Bowie came up from doing another line of cocaine, he noticed suddenly that Paige was still smirking, staring at him silently. Bowie was quickly overwhelmed by an uneasy feeling, and he thought he saw lights in the apartment start to flicker. Paige was still just sitting there smiling and eerily staring straight through Bowie. This caused Major Tom himself to get a little more freaked out. Bowie insisted he could now see Jimmy's aura starting to glow brighter and brighter. So, at last, Bowie finally said, I'd like you to leave. But rather than acknowledging the request, Paige pointed over Bowie's shoulder at an open window. Bowie, growing more angry, finally said, Why don't you just leave through that window? After several more excruciating moments, the guitarist relented, leaving without another word. At that point, Bowie was done with Paige, done with Crowley, and done with the dark arts. He later had his home exercise for fear of whatever bad juju Paige had left behind, and from that point on, Bowie avoided Paige whenever possible. So was this the magical war being waged against Bowie, simply something that he had in his head, or was Paige truly trying to cast magical spells in an onslaught against Major Tom? It's hard to say, but I like to imagine that the two of these guys were on the cusp of a rock and roll magician battle between Jimmy and David that would rival what took place that faithful evening between Aleister Crowley and the occultist poet himself, W.B. Yeats. Wow. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Good, good stuff. Well, as always, we want to thank everybody for joining us tonight, watching, listening, commenting, chatting. We really appreciate all you guys. Um, 
there's tons of other artists who are kind of embroiled in the dark arts. So we're definitely going to uh, jump back into it again. But for now, I think we're going to wrap it up a little bit. We ought to have Lazarus on here, man, to kind of mop some of the stuff off at some point, too, because I'm sure he's a well of information beyond what we know. Yeah. But until then and until next time, folks, I just want to thank everybody for following us on Instagram. We're up to uh, 881 followers, getting real close to the old 1,000 mark, so that's fantastic. On Facebook, of course, you can give us a follow. We are the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. Instagram is at PXLParanormal. Presto, what do you got, buddy? So we were at 273 subscribers on YouTube, but then uh, somebody got their shit shut down, and uh, now we're back down. <laughs> uh, we are at 273. Now we're back down to 272. That's all right. That's so, all right. So, uh, you know, stop getting fucking banned, people. We, we need your support. <laughs> well, you know, all we right. also get a bot or two here and there, so, I mean, what can you do with that, you know? Yeah, what can you do with that? And then, uh, you know, when you uh, post on Facebook that uh, you can watch the show live on YouTube, you should also mention that you can also watch us live on our Facebook page. Um, that's where we got the steamy fan comments tonight. Uh, who, you know, might have been an actual fan, might have been a troll. We don't know. I don't so, know, but I'll take it, man. I'll take uh, it. Yeah, and then uh, we gained an extra follower on Rumble, so we're moving up in the streaming world. And as always, if you need a beard, if you want to grow a beard, if you want to grow the best damn beard that you can grow, you can skip putting mayonnaise on each other's face and do yourself a favor and just put some big dobs on it instead. You can get yourself scents like Bay Rum, Fresh, Citrus, Mint, Classic, and Sweet Tobacco. Get it all. Get it at Dobbs and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order. Again, that's PXLPARA for 20% off your order. Get it all. Get it at Dobbs. Terrific. I like it. All right, if you're in the Wichita area and you're looking for something to eat, stop by and see our friends over at the Paranormal Egg Experience Food Truck or check out the Paranormal.cafe. And if you're in the Pawnee and Seneca area, please stop by see Leslie and the rest of the gang at CD Trade Post, Pawnee and Seneca. All right, next time, I think it's time we get back to the spooky shit, buddy. I'm thinking about another of the old uh, cryptid encounters. What do you think? Well, I do have that book, uh, Wastelands, uh, that I, I got years ago that deal with time slips, uh, you know, ladies' dog getting eaten by pterodactyls. Uh, I, make, I make no promises that I'll have time to put that together while I'm on vacay, but <laughs> um, I, I, th I think that's coming up. I think if it's not okay. the next episode, the following episode, we will, uh, you know, hit on Wastelands, which is a really hard book to come by on uh, Amazon and everywhere else. But I got a copy. I had to pay a lot of money for it. We don't need to talk about it, but I got it for you, <laughs> listeners, so that we, we don't got to tell it. Jeffrey how much you spent on it. Yeah, but she always—you know what? She gave me a hard time the other day because I got those fucking goggles that I can see auras <laughs> with. I don't blame like, her for that, by the way. <laughs> how much did you spend on those fucking things? And I'm like. A lot. Why? She goes, you don't ever fucking wear them. And I'm like, that's not, she's like, they don't even work. I'm like, that's not true. I, I put on the, my, you know, the, uh, whatever, what, what did I say was like Mycenaean, Mycenaean, whatever, mm -hmm, that fucking mm -hmm. purple blue tint. And I'm like, the white duck had a black ore around it. So clearly it's working. Uh, just, you know, quit giving me a hard time about it. Okay. 
my steampunk goggles are gonna help me see shit. Yeah, like David Bowie and Jimmy Page. <laughs> well, why don't you work yeah. on putting together that time slip episode, and I'll go ahead and take over the reins on the next one. I'll write something up while you are on vacay. That way, you can just concentrate on all the fun adventures you have. And I got a couple Fuck hairy, yeah. <laughs> I got a couple hairy beasts and slimy little monsters to talk about. So I'll put together a nice little dive into something spooky, and then uh, we'll get back to the old roots again, man. Um, I also want to say, before we close out, um, this is episode 290. That means we have only 10 more episodes until we hit that 300th episode. A big milestone for this show. We're super stoked. And what we want to do is share another listener story episode. So if you've got your own personal stories to send us, shoot us an email at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. You can also message us, you can DM, you can PM, you can send those a lot of different ways, but we'd really, really appreciate you guys reaching out and sharing some of those stories because we definitely want to share as many as we can. As always, when we do those milestone episodes, it's not uncommon for us to have to split those up into a two-parter. So my challenge is make us have to do a three-parter. Just load those things up. That'd be awesome. Yo! Baba Drock, my man, if you're listening, uh, we had a fun time when you came on the show and we got uh, we got you to talk about, you know, Bigfoots and shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a second. Uh, I'm just saying, what I'm trying to say is we'd like to have you back on. I had fun interviewing you. I don't know. Listener episode, listener, you know, interview. Maybe you should uh, hit, hit your boys up. Let's work it out. Corndog. I saw that you were on. You commented. You're obviously watching us on YouTube, buddy. Come on, listener episode. Uh, jump in with us. Steven, you motherfucker. Get on. We can make this a three-parter. <laughs> we can do it. We should do that, man. We should do some interviews. Get Lazarus on here as well, if you're listening, buddy. Uh, Lazarus, know. I know you're watching. I, yeah. you, you blew up chat. Come on, buddy. Come on. <laughs> Get your dancing three, pants on, pal. Third, yeah, three hundredth episode, man. Yeah, give us give us a doozy. Yeah, that'd be awesome. We'll do a little work with Lazarus. I I need I need a I need detailed story about uh, your, how your grandma saw a pterodactyl. <laughs> I need, I need Is that it. what he put in chat? Yeah, we're gonna have to hear about that. Yeah, uh, Fire Pixie, yeah. send us your own story. We got to hear about what's going on in your life. And then, uh, yeah, our buddy Chris is finally going to jump on one of these days real soon. So maybe we can wrap that up in the 300th episode as well. And then uh, Captain Scott and uh, Strange Familiars. Yeah, man, we'll uh, we'll do it big. I'm excited. But until then, folks, I want to raise this glass and I want to say cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. The cast at Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange.